Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I am the lead pastor at Asbury, and I hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ. I hope it will increase your knowledge of the Bible and of Christian doctrine, and I hope it will be entertaining for you as well. Um, We are still in the middle of our series on the Catechism of the Global Methodist Church. We've done, on Sunday mornings, we've done two out of the first three weeks, uh, which are focused on the ecumenical affirmations. So we've got one more of those to go, and then we'll be getting into the distinctively Methodist parts of the Catechism. So uh, this past Sunday, I talked about the Son and the Spirit, because the first Sunday was about the Father. And we're going to continue in that and maybe go a little bit deeper today if we can. And... One thing you may have noticed is the first week talking about the Father, we had Old Testament scriptures, namely Genesis. Um, But if you're looking in the Catechism, under that affirmation of we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen, you have scripture references in Genesis, in Joshua, Psalms, Isaiah, Isaiah. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Jeremiah, more Jeremiah, Job, Psalms, Isaiah. I'm just going down through all the things that in Genesis again, Deuteronomy again, First Kings, Nehemiah, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Exodus, Psalms again, Joel, Micah. Um, you get a lot of the Old Testament there. Uh, but when you get to the rest of the ecumenical affirmations, there's not actually a whole lot of Old Testament. There's a couple of Isaiah references um, for Jesus, and you can probably figure out what those are on your own. You may not know the verse, but I bet you could quote them. Um, But most of it, of course, is New Testament. And I'm, I'm saying all this because we run the risk of prioritizing the New Testament over the Old Testament because so many of these references, and you get a couple more here in the, under the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'll talk about those in a minute. Um, and, and actually what I want to do is probably I'm going to spend some time today talking about the Old Testament references to the Spirit. Um, now the reason that matters is because it's important to see the Bible as a unified whole. The Bible tells one story about one God. God does not change from Old Testament to New Testament. Same God. The Trinity is always there. But there are revelations happening throughout the Bible that reveal more and more of who God is. That's part of it. And a big part of it as well is what we get in the New Testament is after the revelation of Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection and ascension, people go back and reread the Old Testament through that lens. And so uh, much of the New Testament really consists of very faithful, very devout Jewish men explaining the Old Testament in light of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So when you get to these ecumenical Christian affirmations beyond basics like God is the Father who made everything, a whole lot of what makes Christianity distinct is laid out 
in the New Testament. Now these New Testament verses will rely very heavily on the Old Testament. Um, let me see actually if I can give you a couple of examples of that here in my Bible. Um, let's look at Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's see if I can. I'm doing this on the fly. I didn't plan this part. That's part of what makes it fun. And of course, the first one that does not have an old time. We're going to keep going. I'm gonna, I'm, I will find an Old Testament reference for you uh, on some of these New Testament stuff because I want you to be able to. And by the way, in your Bible, if you have a reference Bible, most people don't use the references as well as they should. Uh, but those references will very often tell you what other parts of the Bible are being. Here we go. Okay. Just make sure I have this pulled up correctly. All right. So, under the second of the ecumenical affirmations in the, in the catechism, if you got it, you can pull it up. Yeah, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, etc., etc. The first number under that is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? One of the scripture references in the New Testament is Acts 2.36, which reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if you have a reference Bible, there ought to be a reference here in verse 36 pointing you to Ezekiel 36. That says chapter 36, verse 22. Let me flip to that real quick. And Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So you have this reference, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has done this. Calling back to Ezekiel, God saying, Say to the house of Israel, I am acting for my sake, not your sake. Now there's another reference in here to verse 32. Which is the same thing. Uh, it's just a, re a repetition. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. But that reference in Acts also points us to Ezekiel 37. Well, same chapter, but verse 37. And I'm not going to read that one because it's not that interesting. But it also points us to chapter 45 in Ezekiel. It's 45, verse 6. Which is really kind of odd because 45 verse 6 is a description of the temple. Specifically, the temple that the people will be commanded to rebuild. The temple, this is this is not the temple they're going to build when they actually return from exile in Jerusalem. This is the temple. This is Ezekiel's apocalyptic vision of the of the perfect temple God will supply for them at the end of all things. Which 
Jesus in other parts of the New Testament will identify himself as. So you have this one little reference here in the New Testament, but it connects to the passage in the Old Testament, which means the authors of the New Testament there are interpreting in that statement a passage from the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. And it's not a passage that you or I would have like instinctively thought, ah, yes, this is about Jesus. But they did. So as you as you study through these passages, um, be be mindful of that if you if you don't if your Bible only has the text in it and it doesn't have these cross cross references, uh, I would highly recommend you buy a Bible that has cross references, so that you can read through it and just see immediately where it's telling you um, to to go and look at other parts of the Bible. Because what you'll find is there, there are lots of places in the Old Testament, in, in the New Testament, where you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily automatically think to yourself, ah, yeah, okay, this is a reference to this part of this Old Testament book over here. But if you look at the references, there's a connection. Uh, we forget sometimes that the biblical authors were um, very, very good theologians. And they knew what they were doing, and they knew the scriptures really, really well. And, you know, they, di they didn't just write their books in haphazard ways, and they didn't just sit down and write down what they saw without ed editing at all. They, they wrote, and they edited, and they formatted, and they structured everything very, very carefully. And so the New Testament is an interpretation of the Old Testament, but through the lens of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Let's see if I can find one out of Paul's letters, because why not? Paul likes the Old Testament a lot. I just want to give you examples of this, so that you've got that in your toolkit. Oh, Paul, you let me down on this one. Here, I thought I was going to have one that was really good. Paul let me down. I want to find a different one. Um, you can also, by the way, find Bibles. Um, if you have a copy of the New American Standard Bible, uh, and I particularly like the 2020 update to that translation, if you're looking for one. Um, one of the best things that particular translation does, I use the ESV on Sunday mornings, by the way. Um, that's normally my preferred translation for reading and preaching because it, it's very accurate, it's very reliable, uh, but it maintains a lot of the, the sort of cadence and rhythm of like the old King James Bibles and older translations. So I, to me, at least, it's it reads well, it sounds Bible-y, if that makes sense. It, it's got a lot of the beauty of the old text, but it's very but it's modern language and it's accurate. So I use the ESV when I preach, and, and that's what I read at home. Um but it's always good to have a, a few other translations around to look at how they do things differently. The New American Standard Bible is sometimes harder to read because they keep a lot of the word order and grammatical structure of the original Hebrew and Greek, which doesn't always translate well to English. Um, but it can be useful in Bible study. And what they do that I really like uh, is when the Old Testament is being quoted directly in the New Testament, they do it in all caps, so you always know where there's an Old Testament quote. So just FYI, if you're looking for a new Bible, uh, 
New American Standard Bible, the 2020 update is, is I like it a little better than the older versions. Um, anyway, I lost where I was looking. <laughs> uh, I nerded out for a little bit. Here we go. First uh, Corinthians 8, verse 6, which is, by the way, this is one of the scripture references for um, what is the son's role in creation. And the answer is, through him all things were made. And here in 1 Corinthians verse 6, uh, Paul says, Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. And if we look at the references here, it gives us a callback. It gives us a bunch of Old Testament callbacks, actually. The first is to uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. So let me go look at that real quick and show you what that is and why that might matter. Numbers. Four verse thirty-five. So Deuteronomy four thirty-five. One of the things Paul says in that verse in Corinthians is there's only one God. Deuteronomy four thirty-five says, "You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord He is God. There is no other besides Him." Now, why does why is this such an important point in the New Testament? Simple. They're calling Jesus God. They're calling the Father God. They're talking about the Holy Spirit. It would be really easy to think that, well, these people must have three gods they worship. Um, Paul says, no, there's only one, which requires some additional explanation on their part. Um, but they, they insist there's only one God we're worshiping. Uh, we can even skip ahead. It also references... Um, Verse 39, therefore know today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. Again, emphasizing one God. Um, another reference, again, this is all stemming from that one passage in 1 Corinthians verse 8, but it also sends me to uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, the foundational prayer of the Jewish faith, their equivalent of the Lord's Prayer. It also sends me to Isaiah 46, 9. Let's see what that says. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Here again, uh, just an emphasis on God being God. And then there's others in Jeremiah that stem from that passage. But what you see is you have all these this, this really strong emphasis in the Old Testament on there is one God, and it's me. And so Paul is, this is where we get the, the, the notion that, okay, clearly it, it's obvious that there is God the Father. It's obvious that Jesus is something different from the God the Father. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, which, is, which again is something different. And so when they formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is three in one, what they're doing is they're saying, look, we, we have seen and encountered that there is God the Father in heaven, that Jesus, who is also God, prayed to the Father in heaven, 
and that when Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit, who is also God. So we've seen these three persons of God. We've encountered them all. We've seen them interact with each other. But our scriptures insist that God is one. Therefore, it must be God is three in one. That these three persons are somehow distinct, but also the same. And, and there, there does come a point in that formulation of that understanding where the, the early, earliest theologians just kind of said, and that's all we're going to know about it. <laughs> that's all we can comprehend, and we're not going to know anymore. Um, and, and that's probably a good place to leave it as far as the Trinity goes. Um, so just, I, I just want to really encourage you, if you're going to look through your catechism or, or any Bible study you're doing, Get a Bible that has those cross-references, and from time to time, especially in the New Testament, although you'll find in the Old Testament sometimes um, things that call forward to the Old Testament, but you'll also find, like I'm, I'm looking here at um, in Esther chapter 8, on all these verses, the cross-references point to other parts of the book of Esther. Um, but you'll find, especially in the New Testament, these cross-references that tell you what other parts of the Bible are either based on what is said in this verse or are informing what is said in this verse. And so you can see how the Bible is a really coherent whole when you have a reference Bible and you can look at um, all of these cross-references. That's another thing, by the way, that the New American Standard Bible tends to do really well is that they have a really, really extensive set of cross-references. The ESV usually does also, but I, I think the um, both the cross-references and the translation notes in the New American Standard tend to be uh, even more extensive, although it's not a whole lot. Um, they're both fantastic translations, but you, you'll get that in any reference Bible. you get all these cross-references that help you put together that the Bible is a coherent whole, uh, which is a really good thing to understand. Now, I want to look at the Holy Spirit a little bit. Um, we, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament thing, because that's where it's talked about the most. That's where it's called the Holy Spirit. It's never called the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, you know, the work of the Spirit in the New Testament is, well, it's front and center in some places, like in the book of Acts. Um, seems pretty clearly to have been front and center in the life and work of the Apostle Paul, who, who will, uh, you know, Paul prayed in tongues. Right? We tend to forget that in, in the uh, non-charismatic church. But Paul, Paul prayed in tongues. Um, so Paul was pretty charismatic. And, uh, but, the old, the, but the Spirit is present throughout all parts of the Old Testament. Look at this in Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is talking about, well, it's talking about Jesus. Um, but you have all this about the spirit of the Lord will be on him. And this spirit is the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That would be the Holy Spirit. 
uh, Isaiah, I mean, there's other mentions, but we're, I'm just looking at just what's in the Catechism. 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Now, this is the verse Jesus quotes in the synagogue, by the way. Um, but again, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. A couple other Old Testament references here. Let's look at Second Samuel twenty three verse two. Verse 2. This is David's, this is the last words of David, by the way. So 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. And the sweet psalmist of Israel declares, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. So you have King David, who wrote a majority of the Psalms, saying that wasn't me, that was. The Spirit of the Lord. Let's look at another one that maybe is a bit more obscure. It's going to take me a second to get there. Micah 3. This is Micah 3 8. Micah 3 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act and to Israel his sin. And so this is the prophet Micah explaining what's going on. And he says, I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord. This is how he speaks through me. So you have these Old Testament references, and they're always to um, the Spirit of the Lord. And so what you need to know is that any time in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord is referenced, that is the Holy Spirit. The wording changes in the New Testament because the understanding of who he is changes. But there was an understanding even in the Old Testament that this Spirit of the Lord could be upon you, could be within you, and could empower you to be a prophet, to be a priest, to speak the word of, the, of God into the people. Um, that, this was, that this Spirit of the Lord was how God worked in and through his prophets. Um, and that, that just, that matters, right? The, the Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. It's present throughout the Old Testament. And not just when it says the Spirit of the Lord, but when it talks about wisdom and understanding, that, that's the Holy Spirit. Which means, in a sense, the books of Proverbs, the book of Job, the, the wisdom, uh, if you have a Bible with the Apocrypha, the wisdom of Solomon, um, the... The Song of Solomon, even, which is one of the wisdom books. The book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books. All those books are 
in some sense, about what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the writer, because they're about wisdom. And wisdom comes from the Spirit. Now let's talk about the church for a little bit, because I don't think I'm going to really get to cover this uh, in a sermon on Sunday morning. So we have this line here, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now let's pause for a minute. This is a lowercase c Catholic, okay? Not the Roman Catholic church, but what Catholic is just a word that means universal. And so what we believe is that there is one church. And, and while it's true that there are some people and some denominations who believe that there is one church and it's them and them alone, uh, what we believe is, is actually that it's all of us. It's, it's all Christians in all times and all places who are faithfully following the word of God. And when it says apostolic, what that means is, one, that refers to our connection to the apostles who walked with Jesus. Um, if I wanted to, and I had access to all of the various databases and libraries where this information is kept, I could probably trace my ordination. I, actually, I have here, actually, by the way, on my desk in my office, I have this really cool plaque that I was given when I was ordained. I'm just going to read it to you. On September 1st, 1784, John Wesley ordained Richard Watcote and Thomas Vassey deacons. The next morning, September 2nd, 1784, he ordained Watcote and Vassey elders and Thomas Cook superintendent. A few days later, the three of them set out for America with documents and instructions from Wesley for the founding of the Methodist Church in America. During a conference held in Baltimore in December 1784, that purpose was consummated, and Francis Asbury was ordained deacon, elder, and superintendent by Thomas Cook on December 25th, 26th, and 27th, respectively. Francis Asbury ordained William McKendry and Elijah Heading. William McKendry ordained James O. Andrew. Elijah Heading and James O. Andrew ordained Edmund S. Jaynes. Edmund S. Jaynes ordained Cyrus D. Foss. Cyrus D. Foss ordained Edwin H. Hughes. Edwin H. Hughes ordained Robert N. Brooks. Robert N. Brooks ordained Ernest T. Dixon, Jr. Ernest T. Dixon, Jr. ordained me, and on this 12th day of June, 2021, I ordain you an elder in the United Methodist Church. So I have that on my desk because I think that's cool. Um... Even though I'm not in the United Methodist Church anymore and I've lost all respect for that particular bishop, the ordination still matters. And what I have on my desk then is this fascinating sort of family tree that connects me in a chain of ordinations directly to John Wesley himself. And if I had access to the libraries and databases where this is all stored, I could probably go back much further. In fact, I would bet I could, if I had the time and energy to do it, I could trace that all the way back to the apostles because those records have been kept. That's what we mean by apostolic. We mean that the ordination of the people leading the church is an unbroken chain straight back to Jesus himself. And we also mean the mission of the church. That our mission is to be apostles.
our mission is to carry the message forward, to witness to Jesus. Now, why does all this matter? Because we don't do Christianity alone. It's not possible. Simply impossible. You cannot do Christianity on your own by yourself. You can't interpret the Bible on your own. The church matters because the church is the body of Christ. The church does the work of Christ in the world. Now, the church obviously gets things wrong, but it is, you know, denominations are human institutions, right? The, the divisions within the church are human institutions, but the church itself is not a human institution. And this is what people get wrong all the time. The church is divinely ordained. It is an institution of God. It's only the divisions within it that, that have been created by human hands. But the church is not a human institution. It is a holy, sacred thing given by God to be his body in the world. And it matters because not, not, just, not just your congregation, but, but the global church matters. Because if we are not connected with believers in other places, we're, we're, we're going to have problems. We need the connection to Christians all over the world. We need them to tell us how they read passages of Scripture because it's so easy if we're isolated to go astray, to read passages and not realize where our own cultural and political lenses are distorting the Word of God, which is why we need input from people in other places. Do you know America is the only country in the world where evangelical Christians are on the far right of the political spectrum. Everywhere else in the world, they are center-left. That's why it matters to have connections with the global church. Because they will say they believe a lot of the same things about Jesus, but the way they put it into practice and action is quite different. And that means that there's something about those beliefs that actually are significantly different, and we ought to sit up and pay attention. That's why... The church matters. It also matters because if all of us Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit, by the same Holy Spirit, then the consensus of the church about what the Bible says and what God wants us to do in the world matters a whole lot more than what I think I individually am getting out of the text. <coughs> if billions of Christians throughout time and alive today read a passage and interpret it one way and you read it and come up with a completely different interpretation odds are you're in the wrong because all those other billions of Christians who have lived and who read the same text empowered by the same Holy Spirit have not come to the same conclusion and you're not you're just not that special to have a different interpretation of it this is why the church matters the church keeps us in context the church supports us the church encourages us the church challenges us, and it keeps us on the right track. That's all we have time for this week, folks. We'll be back next week with the uh, discussion of the final of the ecumenical affirmations. Until then, God bless. <laughs>